The Reluctant Conformist Chapter 7 The Pilgrim A quote relevant to Chapter 7 from George Orwell, 1903-1950, The Preservation of Literature At present, we know only that imagination, like certain wild animals, will not breed in captivity. Old age need not preclude adventure. In retirement, one of Magnus's greatest pleasures was long-distance walking along paths and trails that he knew little or nothing about. Some trekkers conduct detailed research to become familiar with where they're going and what they'll see along the way. No doubt planning is essential for off-the-beaten tracks or potentially dangerous trails. For the countryside Magnus liked to explore, he needed only the most basic knowledge of where the trail led and that there had been no nearby outbreaks of cannibalism or the like to cause concern. Freedom of the open road is magical, the unexpected both challenging and enlivening. It must be confessed, though, that most of the tedious research for the trails he'd tramped had been done by others. Magnus's mere contribution, like that of the film character Chauncey Gardner, was just being there, with enough money to pay his way, resilient good humour, and a stout pair of boots to keep tramping. He'd been so inspired by the miraculous transformation of his disposition after tramping Alfred Wainwright's celebrated trail across the north of England during the autumn of 2005 that he wrote a book about the experience entitled Retirement Blues Goodbye Along Wainwright's Coast to Coast Path. During the spring of 2014, he and an Australian mate Clive tramped the trail from France into Spain. The trail headed westward from Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, across the undulating foothills of the French Pyrenees, and onwards through the Basque Mountains to Bilbao, an ancient Spanish seaport with access to the Bay of Biscay. The mountain terrain made for hard trekking, but the rewards were mighty. Fresh air, physical exertion, open countryside, and arriving each evening at an unfamiliar oasis where the food and wine were generally good and plentiful. Each morning brought with it the delight of walking away from the day before, leaving cares behind, carrying only what was required. During the 12-day, 250-kilometre hike, Magnus and Clive experienced many light-hearted adventures and were endlessly enchanted by the majestic vistas. The escapade still stirs a warm glow of overall satisfaction in his being, and, amongst the plethora of extraordinary events that occurred, three particularly memorable incidents arise. On the first full day's walk in Spain, their fifth on the road, a mystical ember sparked and rekindled Magnus's long-forgotten curiosity about mental telepathy, extrasensory perception, and the allure of shapely legs that keep going up and up. The day's route followed the coast from the French-Spanish border town of Eron to the busy seaport of San Sebastian. The trail, part of the northern Camino, is one of the famous pilgrimage paths to the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela, a route favoured in the late Middle Ages by pilgrims from the British Isles. About noon, they arrived at the seaport and former naval harbour of Pagence de San Juan. They entered from the east, along a narrow, cobbled harbour sideway, lined with ancient warehouses, many converted to stylish waterfront restaurants, 
Both he and Clive were ready for lunch, but not eager for a full meal, so, as wayfarers and pilgrims had done for a millennium or more, they boarded a ferry to cross the harbour. The ship repairs slipways and fishing paraphernalia that cluttered the workaday western harbour side left little space for restaurants. There was, however, a fisherman's café, a simple grotto seemingly hewn out of the cliff face. It was starkly plain in the bright sunlight outside, whilst inside it was small and lightless grey, like a 1930s film set for weary sea dogs on shore leave. The back and side walls were roughly worked and left at that. Tatty crab pots and other fishing paraphernalia dangled above and hung out from the rock walls. Swarthy, casually dressed seafarers and their womenfolk lounged on old metal chairs, cradling wine glasses and eating medallions of fish whilst talking quietly, a wonderfully authentic local find where Magnus felt immediately at home. They secured the last available table by the rock wall next to the chest freezer alongside the tiny kitchen in which an attractive woman in her early fifties skillfully sliced a skinned dogfish into small steaks ready for batter and frying. Fish okay? Magnus asked Clive, nodding towards what the other diners were eating. Ideal, Clive replied. Pardon, madame. Possiblement deux portions de poisson ici, s'il vous plaît? Magnus concocted in garbled French, pointing at the slices of dogfish. No, signor. Poisson fini, she replied. Think again, Clive, he said. The fish is off. At that moment, another woman appeared through the kitchen, just in front of Magnus. Today's catch is finished, but there is tuna available, she said to Clive, in perfect, if accented English. Standing close, she looked around at Magnus, and their eyes locked in startled surprise. A thrilling jolt of recognition surged between them, which was so intense, he felt sure they'd both stopped breathing, as deep within their eyes, two souls became one. She was in her late thirties, possibly forty, and disconcertingly beautiful, with a mane of lustrous black hair. Full of shocked acknowledgement, they slowly smiled into one another's faces as though they had known one another for years, and very much liked what they knew, and yet they'd never met. How odd life is! Two strangers meet in a quayside grotto, since fancy at first flush, simply because the dogfish was off and with only tuna on the menu. The transcendental fluency of their mutual attraction reinforced Magnus's suspicion about the existence of, and occasional engagement with, a not widely acknowledged mysterious sixth sense, a form of insight that is intuitive, instinctive, and instant, to which they had both responded, and which may not be readily suppressed. Magnus believed that their shared awareness challenged the scientific mindset which espoused certainty that life and consciousness are mere chemical reactions devoid of any clairvoyant substance. She was busy serving customers as the two trekkers left the café. Magnus hung back to wave goodbye. She turned and saw him, and her smile, a radiant source of happiness in a mutually recognised and understood secret, remained with him. Magnus and Clive's trekking adventure ended in Bilbao, although for serious pilgrims the trail stretched 650 kilometres further to the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela, 
Whilst it would have been a true taste of outdoor freedom to carry on, Clive had to return down under for work, and in truth, although Magnus had enjoyed what they had done, he had no great desire to go further. He was, however, tempted to return to the fish café to see if the spark that had flashed there could be fanned into a true flame of romantic excitement. On reflection, he didn't go. His reticence didn't stem from the age difference alone. At the time, he wasn't wired for romance, but for life support. Some months earlier, Magnus had been treated in hospital for an enlarged prostate and remained amorously encumbered with an implanted catheter, a tube which enabled him to pass water. In 1997, King Juan Carlos of Spain inaugurated Bilbao's Cubist-inspired Guggenheim Museum a cultural shrine at which art lovers and the aesthetically engaged go to pay homage. Magnus and Clive made the most of their opportunity to visit the titanium-clad treasure house and were inspired by what they saw. It was obvious why the monumental walk-through sculptures by the American Richard Shearer, with their unadulterated rolled steel patina, are permanently installed in the Pride of Place ground floor gallery. If they'd been located on an elevated level, their combined floor load may well have brought the whole edifice tumbling down. The quirky creative flair of the Brazilian artist Ernesto Neto was engagingly expressed through his gallery-wide crochet spider's web spice-scented assemblages and the 30-meter dangling organic enclosure of sensual see-through droplets. Yoko Ono's Half a Wind Show, A Retrospective, organized to coincide with their 80th birthday, required an entire floor of the gallery to encapsulate the essence of her life's work. Ono and John Lennon's mantra, The Power of Imagination, was hypnotically exemplified in The Clock, a 24-hour-long video piece by Christian Markley. The video is made up of snippets from thousands of black-and-white films, ingeniously spliced and edited so that the unrelated segments of the story are set at the actual time of day the viewer is watching. Magnus tried to buy a copy, but it's not available on general release, being restricted for art gallery use only. The two walkers left Spain via tourist-choked Barcelona, Clive departing after one day for Australia, and Magnus several days later for the Isle of Man. Whilst alone, Magnus avoided crowded tourist haunts, although he couldn't resist paying homage at the altar of the creative Wunderkind by visiting the Picasso Museum, where he let himself down badly. After half an hour of suffering the grating voices of the shrill American beauties with their straight blonde hair, expensive perfume, stratospheric ambitions, and perfect teeth, who were right behind his neck in the queue for tickets, he was forced into an act of mental self-preservation. He turned to the film star at his elbow, and emulating their volume, asked, smiling, Excuse me, is it your breath that whiffs of garlic, or is it mine? And with that, silence and sanity was restored, although he was filled with remorse. He also visited the Maritime Museum which included a tour of the Santa Eulalia, a three-masted schooner made fast at the quayside. The sailing ship had a long and honourable history, trading between Mediterranean ports. As an ageing vessel, she became engaged in the less salubrious pursuit of smuggling wheat from Spain to the Bellaric Islands. Even though the vessel is 47 metres long, 
lengthier than both Darwin's HMS Beagle and Captain Bly's HMS Bounty, everything, including the cargo hold, seemed small and cluttered with shipboard paraphernalia. The whiffs of shipboard life, hemp rope, tar, recently worked wood, linseed oil, salt, diesel fuel and paint, all seemed eerily familiar to Magnus. The steep companionway into the ship's prow, which gave access to a cramped forecastle cabin, a wedge-shaped slot, and home for four members of the ship's crew, particularly excited his memory. Faster than the speed of light, the smells, taste, feel, sound, and sight of that claustrophobic dungeon whisked Magnus back forty years to his mid-twenties, when he nearly signed on as a crew engineer aboard just such a sailing ship with equally airless crew quarters. At the time, his reason for not taking passage aboard the Golden Casualo was not that he wasn't attracted to the adventure of following Charles Darwin's voyage to the Galapagos Islands, but that he needed to earn a living. Also, the prospect of swimming among shoals of hammerhead sharks, which seemed to be such a major selling point to other members of the crew, inspired him not one jot. What's the pay? Magnus asked the skipper, and part owner of the schooner. Sixteen pounds a month, he replied, and you have to repatriate yourself to the UK if you choose to pay off. As a graduate trainee with Hawker Sidley, he had little money, and couldn't call on family backing to augment his meagre income. The rug had been pulled out from under the Macaulay family fortune in 1939, at the outbreak of the Second World War, and was dashed to pieces during the spring of 1948. The Galapagos escapade was waived in favour of the lucky few able to afford it. In 1939, the newly married Arthur Wilfred, Wilf, Magnus's father, was running his own motorbike and cycle business on the Isle of Man, and had been doing so since his 22nd birthday. His Athol Street premises were only a few doors removed from where his future wife's relatives ran their Robinson Brothers printing business, the one-time publishers of Robinson's Sporting Tissue and sometime printers of the Isle of Man government's Tinwald Hansard. Wilf's promising commercial career was no sooner firing smoothly on all cylinders than it stalled due to Adolf Hitler's hostile takeover bid for parts of Eastern Europe. How odd it is that the maniacal ambitions of a failed Austrian artist could so profoundly scupper the endeavours of a young entrepreneurial manxman a thousand miles away. War was declared, the motorcycles were requisitioned for the war effort, and due to his trade, Wilf was enrolled in non-combat reserved occupation, building the 27-litre Merlin Spitfire engines at the Rolls-Royce factory in England. During the Battle of Britain, Wilf was one amongst the thousands of ground crew working round the clock to keep the Spitfire and Hurricane fighter planes in the air to fend off the Nazi Luftwaffe on their bombing runs to destroy RAF fields and industrial estates and to shake the stiff-necked resolve of the British people. At the end of the war, when discharged from reserved occupation, he returned to civilian life on the Isle of Man with his wife, Margaret Lillian, and their three small children, the youngest of whom was Magnus. Thanks to the mighty German blitzkrieg, housing in Britain was difficult to come by. The Isle of Man was no exception, and the Macaulay clan was fortunate to find a farm labourer's wooden hut in which to live. During the 1920s, the demountable hut had been relocated to the corner of a field on the Bailo Beg farm, flanking the Macaulay's tribal territory 
of Lonnon Parish. During the Great War, 1914 to 1918, the cabin had been home to some of the 20,000 German, Austrian and Turkish prisoners of war and civilian internees confined in the Nokelo Moor internment camp for the duration of that conflict. No sooner had the family moved into the leaky-roofed former prison camp hut than their father was conscripted into the RAF for two years' compulsory national service. He spent most of this time on the Chile Hebrides, an archipelago of bleak islands which, in Viking times, had been part of the Kingdom of Man and the Isles, a realm which stretched from the northwest coast of Scotland to the Irish Sea to include the Isle of Man. On these remote Scottish islands, Wilf decommissioned military airfields, their purpose having ended with Hitler's suicide and Germany's surrender. 